0: Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news. And, of course, you know, insight and analysis on all the topics you're talking about in the game. I'm Ian McGarry and joining me, as always, is Duncan Castles. Uh, We're going to be rattling through the news items as well as the big talking points from the weekend's Premier League football. Just let's say, flag up to you that yes, she keeps coming over even though we want her to go away, but Valerie is back. Jamie Carricker has done a U-turn and Pep Guardiola has changed his name to Pet for Petulant. But first, Duncan, we start with news today. Of course, that, as expected and indeed predicted on the pod Uh, Kovac has lost his job at Bayern Munich and um, the consequences for this are quite interesting in the sense that um, the favourite now for the job, or certainly the hot favourite for the job, is Ajax current head coach Eric Ten Hag Um, overtaking what you would expect to be two more experienced and probably more obvious choices in Josie Mourinho and Max Allegri. Let's talk about Ten Hag first, Duncan, because he has a history with Bayern that probably not a lot of the listeners might know about, as well as you've got information regarding that he may well be allowed to leave immediately or almost immediately for Munich, whereas uh, a lot of people are saying that he would be kept at Ajax until the end of the season. Yes,
1: yeah, so well, we have a, a, one of the really huge European uh, club jobs opening up now. This is a, a dismissal that was close to happening last season. Um, uh, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge was keen to change coach at Bayern uh, towards the end of last season, but basically was stopped from doing so, persuaded not to do so by Ole Hunnis. Um Kovac is not now gone after that 5-1 defeat at the weekend. And as you say, Eric Ten Hag is, is the a strong candidate to replace him. He he has coached at Bayern for two years previously uh, at youth level. Um he obviously knows German um, and knows the league well um, and most importantly is very keen to work at Bayern so I uh, uh, checked with a contact at Ajax today and was told that yes they're, they're well aware that Ten Hag would like to take that job and um, I think the, the, the they have a uh, release clause a substantial release clause in Ten Hag's contract and are... Uh, prepared to allow him to go to Bayern Munich, if that is the decision that uh, Rümino and uh, the rest of Bayern's hierarchy take in terms of the the successor to Kovac, um, would obviously be a cheaper option for them, albeit with that uh, release clause to pay, than than taking uh, a, a big name coach like Max Allegri um, or Jose Mourinho, who has expressed his interest in coaching in Germany and has um, started. Started studying the German language um, to prepare for the possibility of of, uh, coaching in Germany
0: Now interestingly Duncan um, I've made a few calls uh, both yesterday and today uh, with regards to what was happening at at Bayern and uh, was told that Allegri was aware of the imminent sacking of Kovac as long ago as maybe a week to 10 days but was very cool On the prospect of replacing him, Uh, you reported, of course, that he's been in London uh, for a few weeks learning English and that he was setting his sights on a job in the Premier League. Um, And just as interesting, you did a story for the Sunday Times um, last weekend that Jose Mourinho has, let's just say, had a a very interesting conversation with uh, someone at Arsenal regarding what might be happening at the Emirates.
1: Yeah, first Allegri. Um, as we've said in the podcast several times, he his intention is to take the entire year off. He's still being paid full salary by Juventus. He's using this period um, as a as a holiday um, to take a break from the, the you know the, the intense pressure of coaching Juventus for so many years. Um, spend time with his family. Also, uh, he wants to improve his English language skills with the idea that um, the pre- a Premier League job will be something he does at some point in the future. Um, obviously, he's also interested in in Real Madrid. Um, But, you know, he's on record as saying he expects to coach in the Premier League at some point. Um, However, uh, you talk to people close to Allegri, they are insistent that he will be selective about his choice of job. He doesn't want to come to the Premier League just for the sake of taking a job there, just for the sake of living in the country, just for the sake of being well paid, as you generally are as a Premier League coach. He wants a team um, where he can win and win the, be properly competitive for the Premier League title and be properly competitive for the Champions League, which narrows options down. So um, Arsenal are um, obviously one of the clubs um, that there is an expectation that job is about to to come open, um, but uh, asking a friend of Allegri whether he would be interested in doing that during the season, it was very much the case that his preference would be to wait until the end of this season before taking on a new new job, and then even then, Arsenal might not be perceived as the as the appropriate option for him um, because uh, there's a big question mark over whether they'll even be in the Champions League, uh, given um, where they are uh, at present um, in the Premier League campaign. Um, Mourinho, on the other hand, is extremely interested in the Arsenal job. Um, Gives him the option to remain living in his family home in London, work again in the league Um, he knows very well. and uh, and I think the, the the squad is attractive to him, particularly after the investment that was put in in the summer. Um, and he I know he has been um, asking uh, people he trusts in the game whether they think uh, the arsenal position. It would be a good choice for him, given the interest, the very strong interest there is from Real Madrid in hiring him uh, once Zinedine Sedan departs from that job and has been advised that it would be a good option. Um, understanding is that uh, uh, Mourinho uh, met with the head of football at Arsenal, Raul Saint-Yehi, um, recently to discuss the position there. Um, Arsenal are... Uh, looking for a replacement should they need to change Emery because, for the reasons we've discussed extensively in this podcast um, in recent weeks, problems of communication um, with him and the players, the tactical errors that are happening, the, the the disappointing results that have been delivered by the coach. Um, my guidance is that they uh, have drawn up um, a list of criteria. Um, for a coach to replace um, Emery, and a prominent among those is an English speaker, someone who's very comfortable in the language, um, which isn't surprising given the, the problems Emory has had, someone who knows the Premier League, and someone who can bring a, a defined identity um, to the team. So you can see why uh, why Mourinho would be attractive in, in all of those areas. Um, it would be, a, a Quite a radical change for Arsenal to go for um, a figure of his um, status and and you know controversial figure like Mourinho. Um, obviously, a man who spent much of his time in the Premier League as a as an arch enemy of Arsenal at Chelsea. And I have to say that um, Arsenal's uh, official position on this is that there is. Um, they are not looking for a new coach, and that um, Mourinho did not um, dine with Sanyehi uh, recently. So um, an Arsenal spokesman told me today the dinner didn't happen and we're not looking for a new coach. Um, I think you see from general reporting about Emery that um, uh, the, there is a real sense that um, Arsenal are indeed um, looking for a coach, um, and for obvious reasons. And there's been briefing that they, um, that uh, although they have an option to extend Emery's contract at the end of the season, that they are minded not to take up that option at present. Now, if you're minded not to take up the option of, of your current coach um, at the end of the season, um, you would expect the club... To already be looking for a new coach in fact it would be kind of a dereliction of duty not to do so um, if you've already made a decision that, um, or, or were close to making a decision that um, Unai Emery wasn't the right fit for the club and, um, and you would be changing next season
0: Well as we've said the twilight zone of the November international break fast approaching um, if Arsenal were to decide that they wanted to salvage anything from their season, um, then that would be the obvious time to change manager. And with both Allegri and Mourinho specifically being available and ready to work immediately, then you would have to think that that was going to be an option. I'm intrigued, though, Duncan, in terms of Josie Mourinho, because if you were to present him with a straight choice, and that would be to take on you know, a bit of a basket case at Arsenal right now. Try to make it work. Obviously, there are um, financial restrictions with regards to recruiting players, uh, which we saw in last summer's transfer window. Um, There's unlikely to be any more money in January. Um, He would have to radically revitalise that first team and that squad to get them to perform better in the remainder of this season? Or do you go to Real Madrid where you've got uh, a much greater uh, array of talent already within the club, a club that he knows well, a club that he was successful at, and a club that I suspect he would like a second shot at managing as well? What what would you think, as I said, if he had the choice, and of course we know that these are not always... um, temporal decisions because managers' jobs don't always come up uh, coincidentally at the same time. Where would you think he preferred prefer to go?
1: I think there's, look, there, there are reservations about going back to Madrid. It was a, an extremely difficult place for him to coach, albeit he um, was highly successful there in terms of restoring... Real Madrid is a force in the Champions League with three consecutive runs to the semi-final when they hadn't even got close to the semi-final for years, winning um, the Spanish League uh, for the first time in several seasons and doing so with a a host of records in terms of points gained and goals scored. Um, And ending Pep Guardiola's run at at Barcelona. So um, Guardiola essentially resigned his position um, the day after he lost the league to Jose Mourinho's Real Madrid however the the following season for him was extremely difficult and uh, and the dressing room at uh, Madrid was I think it was the first time he'd experienced that degree of resistance within the dressing room individuals briefing against him Um, and people close to him know that it will be tough Uh, he's had the opportunity to go back to Madrid before and turned it down um, the reason for me, he's interested in doing it now, is he's desperate to get back into football. He, he's spoken time and time again about how much he misses being on the touchline, in the dugout, making decisions. Um, he's addicted to winning, and uh, and I think he wants he wants to uh, feed that addiction again by getting back into a job. You look at Arsenal, and then you, it's a new club. Um, You don't have that history with individual players that he would have at Real Madrid, for example, Sergio Ramos. Um, You are able to remain in the country where your family have their home um, in a league he enjoys playing in. Um, And they are still squads not actually a bad squad there's there's a lot of um, attacking talent there are a lot of decent young players um, there's obviously an imbalance defensively that needs to be resolved um, but if you're looking for a coach to resolve a defensive imbalance then I don't think you, you can go very far wrong by um, putting Mourinho in place and I, I think you know one or two additions in defense and you can turn that into a good unit. I think you'd want to upgrade the goalkeeper and you'd want a better centre-back. But if you have Bellarine back playing and you have Tierney developing in the way people expect him to develop, then that's not a bad basis to work with. Certainly a better squad than than Manchester United have. you could see them outperforming Chelsea. Um, so I see the attraction, um, but I also think there are lots of risks involved in, in going to Arsenal because he will be going back in front of a media which um, has been prepared to, you know, they have very little patience for Mourinho. You saw that at his time at Manchester United. You saw how aggressive the criticism was, and, and it's interesting to compare. The, the ferocity with which um, he was attacked um, in that third season at Manchester United when results dropped off from finishing second the previous year to what's happening at Manchester United now where you've got a coach um, with who's put up historically bad results. Um, I think it's now just three wins in 16 Premier League games. Um, that last 11 times, they, they've, they've gone um, behind by a goal, they've lost all of those games. Um, and, and no criticism from very prominent people in, in football media, ex-Manchester United players who were, uh, were, were happy to go after Mourinho when he was in charge. I, I think there is a, a real risk for him if he comes back and it doesn't work. That, that process starts all over again and you get the reminders of how it went wrong at Manchester United, how it went wrong at Chelsea second time around, um, the, all the kind of cliched um, criticisms of his coaching um, and things that have wound him up in the past. Um, he, he does feel that he didn't get a fair crack of the whip from uh, the media and from pundits and People don't change their personalities very easily and very simply. And um, I can see old patterns repeating if results don't come at, um, at, at uh, another Premier League club he, he was to move to.
0: Before we just go back briefly to Allegri, Duncan, I agree with you on that point about Mourinho. He does seem to be a coach who is has a target on his back and on his front with regards to the media. Um, he's he can be a difficult character to deal with we know that but mm. we both know him well and we, we know him privately and he's a very very likeable uh, intelligent and, and uh, quite quirky guy as well and he often shows that in private and to his players etc which is why I think he's got players to run through brick walls to win trophies uh, under his stewardship um, but I think you're right about any club in England certainly and also you'd have to say the Madrid press who are you know, um, <laughs> they can't just be vicious they can be more than that they're, kinda, you know, they're infamous for being uh, they will tear strips off you and they will, of course they'll be briefed by people at the club as well in order that um, they're given the substance to tear those strips I just wonder you know, if Arsenal are willing to take that on um, with regards to Mourinho because that part of it is a gamble. Arsenal for the entire, uh, almost the entire um, tenure of Arsenal Wenger were, uh, lived with a very, very harmonious um, uh, relationship with the media uh, because Wenger himself uh, was seen almost as bulletproof. Something was Josie himself, as, as more or less pointed out, uh, but without the gun. Um, on several occasions, uh, saying that you know he was an expert in failure and uh, everyone would love a job like that, where you don't have to win trophies, you just have to play young players and people will compliment you, etc. So I just wonder how Arsenal will play that one with regards to their image and reputation and the risk of appointing Mourinho as manager because they know he comes with baggage.
1: Yeah, I have to say when I got the um, information last week that um, Arsenal were considering him, I was surprised um, that they were doing so because of that history he has. And uh, I think it's an indication of how much... Arsenal have changed at board level recently. Um, so you have different people making decisions now, with um, Raul Sainahi, um former Barcelona executive, being extremely prominent in that decision making process they are under pressure to deliver results they're under huge pressure to deliver results they need to get back into the champions league to satisfy the fans and for uh, from a financial perspective they put a lot of money down in the the last transfer window albeit um famously spreading payments over multiple years in the case of uh, individuals like nicola pepe um they have a lot of money invested in Obama Young and they have a lot of money invested in Mesut Ozil who isn't playing matches um, you know who, who has a is at odds with Unai Emery um, as uh, Rafi Honigstein uh, detailed in one of our recent podcasts and you've got a lot of money there sitting on the bench, refusing to even contemplate leaving the club. And remember, Mesut Ozil was a player that Mourinho brought to Real Madrid and uh, probably got the best football of Ozil's career out of. So I I can see why there'd uh, be an attraction there uh, in in, in thinking about bringing Mourinho in as as coach. But um, look, Mourinho needs to win in his next job, because of this perception around him um, that Manchester United was a, you know, a grand disaster, and although Solshar is going a long way to, to undermine that impression, I think it will remain regardless. Um, uh, people like to, to um, knock down those who have done well in the past. So he knows in his next job he has to succeed, um, and I think that this long wait to get a job has made him realise he can't get the perfect conditions, he's going to have to take something um, where there are problems at a club, as as, to be fair, he's done for the majority of his career and come in and solve those problems and be successful that way. If he goes back to England, he has the media issues. If he goes back to Spain, he has the media issues because he has the history in the club. Um, Italy... He, I think would be easy for him because his status there is extremely high and uh, uh, that won the league both seasons he was at Inter um, and that uh, unprecedented treble that he also achieved at Inter. Um, so the other options are to go to a new country like France which obviously he targeted the Paris Saint-Germain job in the summer and was overlooked by the Emir of Qatar for that job and you know, my understanding is he is unlikely um, to get... PSG at any point, as long as the Amir's uh, position on, on Mourinho remains the same, or alternatively go to Germany, and um, Germany is going to be a much harder place for him to work because of the language. Um, you know, learning another Latin language as a Portuguese speaker is relatively easy, he, he demonstrated that at Inter um, and at, at Madrid. Um, learning German from scratch and then being able to communicate effectively with the players when you're much of your coaching, a big element of Mourinho's coaching is about communication, um, is, a, is a big ask and I, I think he's aware of that too. And to contextualise um,
0: uh, our rounding off the conversation about Max Allegri, Duncan, two jobs which I think would be both attractive and open to him, uh, two clubs who have underachieving, to say the least, um, are Tottenham Hotspur and Manchester United, both of whom failed again last weekend to win their matches. It's now Tottenham's worst start in the Premier League uh, for many years, but United's worst start in 30-odd years um, with less points gained, I think, since 1986. Um, do you think we're becoming desensitised to Manchester United losing at places like Bournemouth and Newcastle and West Ham? Because it's almost like it's become the norm now that we don't expect them to win every week, like you know we might have done in the 2000s or, or certainly in the 1990s.
1: Yeah, look, Allegri's interest in the Manchester United job—he has question marks over it because um, the the squad is so poor um, and there's so many problems within the club. Uh, and as you say, um, results have been um, historically bad uh, since Solskjaer came in. He's he's definitely interested in the the Tottenham job, job as we've said in the podcast, and has Franco Baldini. Um, helping him uh, and recommending him as an option uh, to replace Pochettino to, to Daniel Levy. Um, that allows him to live in London. I, I, think, I think you're absolutely right, and I think uh, about Manchester United, and I think Manchester United are, are responsible for this. You know, you, we have these repeated briefings. We have, you know, Edward was uh, giving an interview recently talking about how long the process will take and um, that it will need multiple transfer windows to solve uh, the squad problems they have and it will uh, be uh, the their briefing is it will be three years before they expect to compete for the Premier League uh, again um, I think once you start putting that word out then um, then standards drop and and it becomes acceptable and, and let's face it the way Solskjaer's results are presented is that this is acceptable that um, he, he has a terrible squad and he, and he needs to be given the time to sort it. And it, it's OK that um, he's only won three in 16 Premier League games because he hasn't had time yet. And a judgment shouldn't be made until he's had that, that time um, to buy more players in um, and, and turn the squad into to his own squad um, and yeah there, there does seem to be an acceptance of mediocrity from people like Gary Neville um, people like Rio Ferdinand um, and and more importantly from the club itself that, uh, that that this is a process they have to go through that they have faith in Solskjaer, um to uh, to uh, resolve it and and to bring them back to success and they're, and they're going to be patient and wait for it meanwhile they are tenth in the Premier League, and um, such behemoths of the English game as Sheffield United, Bournemouth, Brighton, and Crystal Palace uh, ahead of them in the current Premier League table
0: well there's no bigger behemoth than the Great Brighton Wolverham, as we know uh, <laughs> Manchester United twice in the last two seasons, and uh, I I don't think there's any fear, having been at the uh, win over Norwich City uh, last weekend about going to Old Trafford. And that's saying something for a club like Brighton Old Valby that the players are quite confident going there, uh, as well as the coaching staff. And don't get me wrong, they're not underestimating the task at all. uh, But they just think, well, you know, it's just not what it once was. We've got a chance. And we'll go there and we'll try and take that chance. Now, we're going to come on to the old subject that everyone's talking about um, after last weekend. Uh, we're very aware that we're, yes, you know, we talk about VAR a lot, but I think everyone can agree that we reached a new depth of farce last weekend. Not just one, two, three, four decisions which were, you know, on the face of it. Not just not clear and obvious, but ludicrous in the way that they turned out, none more so than Bobby Firmino's armpit being offside. Um, Duncan, I have never, ever in 25 years of covering football been told a player's armpit is offside, but yet that was the reason that was given uh, when a goal for Liverpool was disallowed at Villa Park last weekend. Um, But it wasn't just that. There was a penalty decision which was reviewed not once but twice by the VAR uh, in Stockley Park, um, because apparently he needs to review his review. And then <laughs> we've got, and again, and I think this is significant, Duncan. Um, we've got guys who um, are very, very well respected in the game. One in Jamie Carragher, who is an, as a is a big influence as a pundit, and another who, as a coach, and obviously having had such a st- um you know, starring. Uh, career as a player, Frank Lampard, now coaching Chelsea, said uh, that after the Jared De La Feo penalty um, incident was overturned by the VAR, uh, saying that it's taking us to a dangerous place if this is how we're going to make decisions or overturn decisions. Uh, there was a big powwow uh, last Wednesday week um, between managers, PGMOL officials, referees, and the Premier League, as well as some and a couple of FA attendees, I'm told. Um, all of the coaches attended. So all 20 in the Premier League. That's something to get them together during a season in one place. But just show you how important it is. They wanted to express their views. They came away having been told that they would return to clear and obvious and that there would be no more what they see as petty or you know, deferential um, uh, reviews just, be- just for the sake of it. But they were also told that they didn't want to see referees, on-field referees, go to the monitor at the side of the pitch because it elongated and delayed resumption of play. And what we got in response was, as I said, a weekend of disappointment and, in some cases, just befuddlement with the to decisions. Jamie Carricker Duncan, favourite pundit of yours, I know, did his Margaret Thatcher in reverse. He said, <laughs> she said the lady's not for turning, but the scouser was for turning, because he said, I was a big fan of VAR, uh, I wanted to give it a chance, but now I just can't be have any faith, because it's just not working. Now, we know you've not been a fan, but what did you make of... You know what was probably the lowest point in the Premier League so far for the video assistant referee system.
1: Look, I don't think any of this is a surprise. I mean, we're what 11 weeks into the Premier League season, and now you've got the majority, I would say, of voices um, indicating that it's not working. Um, we we predicted all of this, um, and Premier League not doing themselves any favours with still um, giving armpits offside, marginal offside decisions. I think they've been the worst of the decisions we've had this Premier League season, which started from, I think the very first week, we had controversy over marginal offsides. That has been demonstrated. It's been very clearly demonstrated that the system is not accurate enough to make these judgments. that the image you're showing is simply an image generated off the back of um, two subjective decisions as to where when a ball was kicked and uh, where, players, or where two players' bodies ends to, to draw the line, um, which is then used to assess offside. And um, the image, because of a frame rate problem, um, because of uh, calibration issues, um, just can't be fully accurate. So they're, um, they're guessing, they're essentially guessing on these calls, but they're continuing to give them. Um, and they haven't addressed the fact that it's been demonstrated that the offside technology is not accurate enough Um, they just carried on using it as is the they have made a major change in the implementation of uh, reviews of penalties and goal scoring decisions uh, nine games into the season which frank lampard pointed out that last weekend, or the weekend before last, we suddenly got a step change in the way VAR was being used. So the high bar that the Premier League had had flaunted as the the way in which they were going to um, implement VAR in a better fashion than any any other leagues or competitions previously was dumped, and we suddenly started getting marginal decisions overturned, um, which has caused even more controversy. That's inevitable, because as we've said, multiple times, the majority of football rules are subjective. If you give two different people um, video of a a decision that has to be made, whether it's a foul or not a foul, they will have differing opinions. We've seen that for years, Um, you know, it's kind of food and drink of the the media commentary business is to argue about refereeing decisions. Um, How often do you get your three pundits in a TV studio agreeing? Uh, that a referee's decision was correct before VAR a, a, ever came in. That you discuss the controversial decisions. There's usually not agreement on it. Now we've we've turned it into a system where a guy um, in a in a TV studio um, far away from the game has given the ultimate say over what a, a marginal decision, because they are all marginal decisions, should be. Um, and surprise, surprise. It's controversial, the players don't like it, the managers don't like it, the club officials don't like it, the fans don't like it, it doesn't improve the game, it makes the game worse. Um, It has been, I would say, the biggest mistake I've seen from football authorities in my um, sort of almost two decades of covering football.
0: It is incredible that uh, they seem to lurch from one crisis to another uh, over this. I would ask all of our listeners because uh, i 've done this myself, so this is a, this is a scientific experiment, people, <laughs> but go just go go to your closest mirror or even just look at it yourself and see how um protruding your armpit is compared to the rest of your body, because mine can be no more than i don 't know two or three centimeters if it 's even that now, given that we know that uh, v r has been we 've been told haven't we duncan that they um the mistake uh, margin is, is it four, no, 10 centimetres? Is that correct?
1: Dep- depends on the speed at which the, the players are running and in what direction they're running, but so, I think it, it can be as much as 30 centimetres.
0: Okay, so I'm assuming that Bobby Firmino was a, an athlete in the prime of his life, and I'm not. I, just rec- I reckon his armpit's probably smaller than mine. I would be willing to accept that. So, how the hell could VAR rule that his armpit protruded across that line to rule him offside I'm kind of um, like waiting, Duncan you know, I don't know what the correct medical term is but you know people who've got sticky out belly buttons (laughs) rather rather than the kind of inverted one I'm waiting for someone's belly button to be offside (laughs) (laughs) so that we can then blame that as well Because if an arm trick can be offside, surely a belly button can be offside. In fact, we could even have the term the belly button offside trap played by (laughs) defenders uh, pointing to the attacking player's belly button saying, look, he's got a sticky out one. (laughs) It's definitely offside. Um, Sorry, I jest, but I have to bring some kind of brevity people to this particular debate because it's getting, uh, as you all know, a little repetitive, a little bit boring. So we're trying to bring, yeah, just a little bit of kind of humour to it. Um, Someone who seems to be suffering from uh, a sense of humour, let's just say lack or even bypass right now, Duncan, is um, Manchester City's manager, Pep Guardiola. I think we all uh, saw that they uh, did an amazing job to come back from a goal down at Southampton on the weekend at the same time as Liverpool, where a goal down at Villa Park. Um, But Pep responded... Uh, Bizarrely, in two ways. Uh, The first was uh, he complained bitterly both to the Southampton bench during the game as well as to the uh, fourth official that the Southampton bench was retaining the ball and not releasing it uh, if it had come to them. And in response, once his team did go 2-1 up uh, and they did win the game, as we know, he offered the ball in a very sarcastic manner to the Southampton bench saying, do you want to hold the ball now? But I think more pertinently, um, in his post-match interviews, uh, he was asked about was he aware of what was happening at Villa Park and with Liverpool, Uh, because clearly um, in the actual uh, chronicling of the way the games uh, panned out, uh, Man City went back into their own dressing room uh, at a time when Liverpool had drawn level with uh, Aston Villa. But then, of course, Sadio Mane scored a a sensational um, back header into the corner of the Villa goal to, to win the three points. And we should say as well, Duncan, that they now have taken 10 points from losing positions. This is Liverpool this season. Far more than any other team. As well as more goals in the last 15 minutes or on added time as well. Now, you've obviously alluded to this last season. You talked about how... Um, a lot of games and a lot of Liverpool's points were gained in that uh, timescale. But I think what was, I think, uh, as I said at the, at the top of the podcast, petulant Guardiola, pet, not Pep, um, then went on to say, and I think it it was over the top. Sadio Mane, he didn't say Mane, but he was referring to Mane. Sometimes it's he dives sometimes he scores amazing goals but he's done it so many times he's clearly an amazing player now obviously an attempt I think to disrupt or at least wind up Jurgen Klopp and Sadio Mane and his team before next Sunday's showdown at Anfield between the two top clubs in the Premier League but with so much of the season left to go Duncan I don't know. We've talked a lot about Pep Guardiola's personality in the past. It just seems to me that he's getting a little bit edgy already, even at this early stage in the season.
1: We know Pep is like this. He's always been like this. He's a, he's a guy who, can't, who does get wound up when things aren't going his way. And I look at... I, I, one of the strategies that Mourinho used to bring him down at Barcelona and and defeat him and win the league title in Spain and get Guardiola out of out to Spain was to work at, at um, Guardiola's personality. He had a, he, you know, went to psychological war with Guardiola, knowing him and having known him from from uh, working with him at Barcelona. That, that was a weakness in his personality, and and it was effective um, for Mourinho in in those circumstances. And you know, Guardiola's used to winning. He's used to having the best resources. He's uh, he, he's. He doesn't like it when things go against him, which you know you can say that's the case for most coaches, but I don't think he responds to it as well as other coaches. The comment about Mane, um, that's clearly a very deliberately, strategically placed comment to put pressure on the referee um, ahead of the, the fixture between the two clubs. Um, so it, it's a tactical move on his part. I can understand his frustration. Um, he He would be frustrated with Liverpool's you know almost superhuman powers of recovery um, and this ability to get results at, at end at the end of game, as you say, ten points taken from uh, losing positions already this season. Um, and it, it's frustrating. Um, it's always going to be frustrating for the coach who is under pressure to stop. That team for winning the title to watch those results come in again and again. Um, so yeah, there there I think is the cause of of this petulance. He's um, he's seeing uh, an opportunity to to haul them back in, and also his team is struggling to to get into position to haul them back in because we're we're seeing these matches like the Southampton game where the, where the opposition defend deep and this current Manchester City are struggling to break them down. Um, we're seeing his team conceding more goals because he's got these um, rash of, of injury problems in defence and uh, and a shortage of centre-backs he trusts because the club um, decided not to to give him a centre-back in, in the summer. So all of these things are mounting up against Guardiola and we're, we're seeing it in his behaviour. And again, I, I don't think it's is surprising from anyone who's, who's studied Guardiola down the years.
0: I'm looking forward to to the week ahead, Duncan, with regards to the build-up to this game. Next Sunday, um, I think there's going to be a lot more (laughs) mud-slinged, if I can put it that way, uh, between now and then. And speaking of mud-slinging, we're going to round off today's podcast because, of course, it is Monday with our heroes and villains section. I'd like at this point, just before we do here are some villains, to ask you, please, send your questions to us for Wednesday's podcast, which is your questions answered. Uh, so get in touch at Transfer Podcast, or indeed at Duncan Castles, at Garbo sj. All the usual uh, ways to get in touch and ask us your questions, please. Um, Duncan, uh, a few candidates maybe for villains this week, but um, please tell us who you have um, decided upon.
1: I think think this week's villain will be um, Unai Emery for uh, a comment that went down very badly with the Arsenal supporters following his team's 1-1 draw with Wolverhampton at the weekend in which Wolverhampton had uh, the majority of uh, the attacking chances and were probably unfortunate not to win it. And Emery's um, response was to say that the result was a bad result, but tactically it worked like we wanted. Um, which I don't think did him any favours because people were asking if that's what you wanted from a tactical perspective, um, what exactly were you thinking?
0: Why didn't you win? <laughs> I think is the uh, the question, if that was the case. Are you tactically playing for a draw? <laughs> um, very good, very good. Um, I'm going to nominate as my hero, maybe somewhat expectedly, but I can't go past Bobby Firmino's armpit becoming the first ever armpit in the history of football to have ruled a goal out on offside. Um, I I understand that Bobby Firmino's armpit has its own Twitter account now. I'm not surprised because those um, scousers have got a great sense of humour. So they they clearly think up these things very quickly. And uh, Bobby's armpit has been tweeting repeatedly uh, about his role or its role in uh, the uh, game um, which saw them win late at Aston Villa and how it wasn't his fault that his owner Bobby was offside for that first goal so Bobby Firmino's armpit take the hero worship well you can Um, this is the Transfer Window Podcast Uh, I've already said that you can get in touch with us at Transfer Podcast at Duncan Castles at S J. Your questions answered, again, just a reminder, on Wednesday, get them in us, lots to talk about, uh, not just from what's happened in the last couple of days, but obviously, Champions League this week as well, as we're building up to that Premier League epic at Anfield next Sunday. Um, if you like what you've heard, and of course, you know the drill, um, please do it again if you feel like it, log on to iTunes, give us a five-star review, we expand the community, everyone's happy. Well, We hope we make you happy. Let us know if we don't, let us know if we do. Uh, From us, from Duncan and I, that's all for today. We will see you through the transfer window
1: on Wednesday. Thanks for listening.